Now is the time we bring you the virtual stage of our 11th Achieving Optimal Health Conference at Georgetown University. To experience this talk with all the videos, slides, and graphics, head over to the BBNR website where you can enjoy the entire day of archives of nine incredible speakers for just $29. Go to bbrconsulting.us and click on store. One more time, visit our store at bbrconsulting.us. Thanks for staying curious and for living your best life with us. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Hi everyone, it's such a pleasure to join you for the 2021 Achieving Optimal Health Conference. I'm Dr. Robin Chutkan, Integrative Gastroenterologist, and I am going to be talking to you today about the antiviral gut, how to make sure yours is working to protect you. When we think about our bodies, one of the questions that I always ask is, who's doing all the work? Who's digesting my food? Who's making my hormones? Who's detoxifying compounds? Who's basically my worker bee? inside my body, performing all these bodily functions? Well, it's actually your microbes. We are moving, living organisms composed of literally trillions of different parts. We have about 100 trillion microbes that live in and on our bodies. We have about 23,000 human genes versus 3.3 million microbial genes. We have about 10 times the number of microbial cells compared to human cells which could lead you to wonder if we are maybe more microbe than human. And that's certainly been a question that has been asked. If we think about what these microbes do, what their role is beyond just making smelly gas. I mentioned digesting food. So obviously your microbes are very intimately involved in breaking down the food into its constituents and helping it move across that digestive lining so it can get absorbed into the body and it can travel through the bloodstream to all the different organs that need it. Your microbes also help you synthesize vitamins. For example, vitamin K, that's one of the critical vitamins that helps your blood clot. And one of the things we notice in the hospital is that when people are admitted to the hospital with an infection and they're on broad-spectrum antibiotics, after about four or five days, the phlebotomists, the people in the hospital who draw blood, will often say, oh, this person needs some vitamin K. And we give them a shot of vitamin K. And that's because the antibiotics that they're on wipe out the microbes that make vitamin K. And so after a few days, we need to give them synthetic vitamin K. So in your natural state, not in the hospital, not on antibiotics, your microbes are intimately involved in making, they create cofactors for a lot of these essential vitamins. They also metabolize drugs, break down toxins. They communicate with your central nervous system. We talk about the second brain in the gut, the enteric nervous system. And your enteric nervous system has actually about seven times as many nerve cells as your spinal cord. So not quite as many as your central nervous system, but the gut itself has a significant nervous system and is also intimately involved in making neurotransmitters that communicate with the brain, things like serotonin, the feel-good hormone. Most of it is actually located in the gut. So there's a bi-directional communication between the gut and the brain that's essential for communication. And we'll go, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Your microbes are also involved in a process called angiogenesis. 
which is growing new blood vessels. And that's also a very important part of just maintaining optimal human health. They synthesize compounds called short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids, things like butyrate, butyric acid, or propionic acid, are critically important in the gut immune connection. And I'm going to tell you later on in the talk how to make sure you're generating sufficient quantities of short-chain fatty acids to keep yourself healthy. Our microbes also turn our genes on and off. So our genes are definitely more static than our microbes, but they're not completely static because depending on your complement of bacteria, different genes in your body can be activated, can be turned on or off, and that can affect whether a disease that you're genetically predisposed to get actually develops or not. Your microbes also modulate your immune system, and that's critically important now, especially as we're dealing with global pandemics, understanding that gut immune connection and how the microbes in your gut actually train your immune system to distinguish friend from foe and train your immune system when to react, when to ignore, when to really react. As we've seen with this pandemic, we know that that can go terribly wrong. And we can see things like cytokine storm, which is really an overactive immune system. And part of why that goes wrong has a lot to do with what's going on in your gut. And again, more on that to come. And finally, our gut microbiome is really critically involved in protecting us against pathogens. Now, when we talk about bacteria, I don't like to distinguish too clearly between good and bad bacteria because it's almost like saying, are you a good person or a bad person? So everyone who's a good person, raise your right hand and everyone who's a bad person, raise your left hand. Most of us will probably have two hands in the air. We're a little bit good and a little bit bad. And bacteria are a little bit like that too. Now, there are definitely certain species that are more beneficial. So if we think about species like Bifidobacterium and Fecalobacteria prosnitzii, Lactobacillus, these are some of the species that really confer survival advantage. For example, in the vagina, Lactobacillus helps protect you against invading pathogens, which include viruses like herpes and human papillomavirus and even HIV. So women who have a really healthy complement of Lactobacillus bacteria those bacteria can make acid that repels those viruses. So literally, you have a lower likelihood of contracting a sexually transmitted disease when you come into contact with it if you have a healthy vaginal microbiome. And the same is true for the gut. So remember that exposure does not always equal infection. What happens between the time that you get exposed to something and whether or not you get infected a lot of that is dependent on your immune system response, and that response is guided by your gut bacteria. And again, the proportion of good to bad. When we think of some of the, let's say, less desirable microbes, we're thinking of things like Campylobacter, and you're probably familiar with Campylobacter jejuni. It's one of the most common bacterial foodborne illnesses. Also, a bacteria called Enterococcus faecalis, or sometimes we call it Strep faecalis. That's involved in surgical wounds. And as I'll tell you in a few slides, that's also involved in COVID and poor outcomes with COVID are strongly associated with high levels of Enterococcus faecalis. And then, of course, bacteria like Clostridium difficile, which you've probably also heard of, C. difficile. It's a common hospital-borne infection that typically occurs when someone has been on antibiotics and sufficient quantities of their good bacteria, the ones I just talked about, the lactobacillus and the bifido, et cetera, have been wiped out. And now Clostridium species proliferate, and all of a sudden you have a C. diff infection. So the goal here really is not to have all good 
and no bad. It's really about balance. And when we talk about immune balance, we're really talking about microbial balance. Let's explore how that works a little bit. We start out with a normal microbiome, ideally, and that is a mixture of mostly anaerobic bacteria, bifidobacteria, lactobacillus, etc. And then as we progress from normal to what we consider a dysbiotic state, a state of imbalanced gut flora, a few things start to happen. The levels of healthy bacteria like the lactobacillus and bifidos start to drop, and we start to see more fungal organisms, more aerobes, etc., And then those organisms actually start to colonize and multiply. And then before you know it, in this sort of late stage of dysbiosis, we have reduced levels of the healthy bacteria, the bifido and the lactobacillus, and we have higher levels of things like E. coli and Klebsiella. So we'll take an even closer look here. So on the left, you see the relatively normal microbiome represented with the bifidobacteria and lactobacillus mostly. And then on the right, you see a dysbiotic microbiome And so there's still lactobacilli and bifidobacteria there, but we see more Klebsiella, more Strep, more Proteus, Yersinia. And these bacteria aren't really serious pathogens like Ebola or even SARS-CoV-2. They're what I like to call pathobionts. And that's a term that's actually, I wasn't the one who coined it. So it's sort of a mix between a pathogen and a symbiont, which is a bacteria that lives relatively peacefully with us. And so when you have too many of these bacteria represented and fungal organisms, now you have a state where this is a pathological state. And again, it's not because you've been colonized with really dangerous bacteria, but it's because the balance, the ratio of good to bad has been disrupted. Now, what are some of the symptoms of dysbiosis? This is really where I come in because as an integrative gastroenterologist, this is my bread and butter. Most people who have dysbiosis, who have a disrupted microbiome, will have bloating. And so I see a lot of that. And that can be manifest as either belching from above, passing gas from below, flatulence. It can be pain in the abdomen because of abnormalities with gut motility, abdominal distension. The appetite can be decreased. People can either gain or lose weight, an unpleasant taste in the mouth, diarrhea, sometimes constipation. But dysbiosis doesn't just affect what's going on in your GI tract. Dysbiosis affects your entire body. And it's linked to many of the autoimmune diseases that we see, including type 1 diabetes, inflammatory bowel diseases, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, which I see a lot of in my practice, fatty liver, even heart disease, coronary artery disease is really felt to have a microbial origin. Obesity, because your complement of gut bacteria will determine how much energy you can harvest from the different food. So depending on what's growing in your gut, the exact same meal given to two people with different microbiomes, one person can pull out 1,600 calories and the other person may pull out 800 calories. And of course, that energy harvest has implications for whether you're going to gain or lose weight. Carcinogenesis, we know that diseases like colon cancer have a clear microbial link to what bacteria are growing in your gut. Pulmonary disease and things like asthma and atopy, so allergic diseases, as well as rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, and of course, your brain. So I talked about that enteric nervous system and the gut-brain axis. The gut influences what's going on in the brain through production of neurotransmitters, through altering your mood, creating stress or anxiety or adding to it, behavioral changes. And of course, the brain influences the gut by affecting gut motility, secretion, nutrient delivery, and microbial balance. So it is very much 
a bi-directional communication that goes on. And most of that communication goes on through the vagus nerve, the 10th cranial nerve. So how does what's going on in your microbiome affect your immune system? What, what is it about that gut immune connection that links the gut so clearly to your ability to defend yourself from things like coronavirus? The immune system is this really complex network of cells and proteins. And the bottom line is it is there to defend your body against pathogens and infection, but just not pathogens and infection alone. Your immune system is also involved in protecting you against the development of cancer and other illnesses. You have really two immune systems. You have an innate immune system that you're born with and an acquired immune system that you develop over your lifetime. And that acquired immune system records every encounter it has with different organisms so that it can recognize and destroy those organisms when it encounters them again. And they, that's basically what we're doing with a vaccine. We're giving a tiny amount of protein from a pathogen with the idea that your body, your immune system, will be able to create antibodies against that pathogen when it encounters it again. Most of your immune system is actually located in your gut. About 80% of it is in the spleen, in your appendix, and in something called Peyer's patches, which are lymphatic tissue right in the bowel itself. So those 30 feet of digestive superhighway that are running really from your mouth to your anus, that is actually where most of your immune system is. And of course, you have some in your adenoids and tonsils and some other organs. I wanted to show you this slide to show you just how complex that gut immune connection is. But if you look at the top of the screen, those little finger-like projections are the villi of the intestine. So that's basically the intestinal surface that's facing into the gut lumen. And that's where all the bacteria are. And then you'll notice that there's just one cell between the villi and all that complicated stuff happening in the second half of the slide, and that's the immune response. So literally, the trillions of bacteria that call your gut home and the many millions of immune cells, probably way more than that, but I'm not an immunologist, so I don't know the exact number, but the many, 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 the bountiful immune cells that are in your body and also embedded in the lining of the gut are literally separated by a border that is one cell thick. And they are in constant interaction and communication. So for example, a bacteria in your gut called Bacteroides fragilis, when you encounter a virus, Bacteroides fragilis stimulate cells in the lining of your colon to release substances called interferons. And interferons are so named because they interfere with viruses. So they literally interfere with that infectious process. And so it's really the gut bacteria, commensal organisms, meaning this sort of healthy bacteria that reside with us and, and don't cause any problems, they trigger the immune cells to release interferons that can then activate an immune cascade to get rid of the viruses. So if you didn't have those bacteria, you would not be able to mount an immune response and protect yourself. And we know that from germ-free mice. Germ-free mice cannot live in the real world. They cannot live and survive outside of a sterile environment. And the same is true for germ-free humans. So the next time you're sort of scrubbing yourself from head to toe, I want you to remember that. Now, that's a little bit of a fine balance during a pandemic, right? Because obviously we want to be healthy. We want to make sure that our hands don't have any virus on it, and we're not transmitting that to our face, to our mouth or nose or anything. But there really is a fine balance between taking it too far and super sanitizing everything and making sure that we still are in healthy contact with soil microbes, etc., and we're still continuing to enrich our microbiome. And I'll tell you how to do that towards the end of this talk. 
So this is a gut immune interaction, incredibly complex, incredibly important. Literally, without that hand and glove relationship between your immune system and your gut, you will not be able to mount an immune response or you will mount too active an immune response. And I'll tell you how that happens in just a moment. So really what we're striving for is a balanced immune system, not just during a pandemic to protect us from SARS-CoV-2, but in general to protect us from getting cancer or having other serious infections. So if you have an immune system that is underreactive, that can mean that the surveillance, the ability of your immune cells to survey what's going on and to weed out cells that are problematic is significantly compromised. And you can end up with things like cancer, or you can end up with active viral infections that flare up like herpes flares up, shingles, et cetera, or reactivated tuberculosis. So even pathogens that have entered your body and are dormant, if your immune system is not active enough, those dormant infections can flare up and you can find yourself having active infections. And that's why people often get flare-ups of shingles and herpes when they're stressed, because stress is one of the things that really compromises your immune system. Infection is another thing that can happen if you have an underreactive immune system. Bacterial infections, viral infections, fungal infections, parasites, etc., which is why if you are on medications like steroids or certain biologics that suppress your immune system, you're at higher risk for all of these infections. If you have an immune system that is overreactive, you can respond to inner internal threats, your, your body's own gut bacteria, your own tissues and joints in the form of autoimmune diseases. So in the case of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, the two autoimmune diseases that I see the most of, your body starts to react to normal gut bacteria and the normal gut lining, and the end result is inflammation and ulcers and bleeding and lots of problems in the GI tract. In the case of rheumatoid arthritis, your body starts to wage war against your own joints. In the case of psoriasis and eczema, it's the skin. So that's an example of an overactive immune system responding to internal threats. An overactive immune system responding to external threats can be allergic reactions. So it could, be, could range from seasonal allergies to reactions to bee stings, hives, urticaria, things like that. So we're really looking for the Goldilocks immune system, not too active, not too inactive, just right so that you can protect yourself. I mentioned earlier about the cytokine storm. If you have an immune system that is too robust and too active, you can end up instead, you want the immune system to be active enough to clear the virus. But if it's too active, you end up harming tissues. You end up drawing a lot of cytokines, these inflammatory agents to the site. And instead of just cleaning up the virus, now they start waging war against your own tissues. And then you, you end up having acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, or liver failure, etc. So it's really that balance that you're looking for. And when people talk about boosting their immune system, I have to remind them, you don't want an overactive immune system. You want a just right immune system. This is what I like to remind people, particularly at times like this that it's less about the potency of the pathogen and more about the health of the host. Now, some pathogens are really lethal, but even things like Ebola that are just gruesome and terrifying, Ebola infect only a small minority, well, larger than coronavirus, but Ebola don't, don't cause infections in everyone who's exposed to it. So there is still this element of the health of the host 
how can you create a more resistant gut, an antiviral gut, so that you can come into contact with these viruses? Because to some extent, some of this stuff is unavoidable. Obviously, social distancing, masking, vaccination, all really important. But there is an inevitability with certain viruses because they are so widespread in our environment. And so how can you create the kind of gut that is really, you know, firing on all six cylinders with that just right immune balance so that even in the face of exposure, you are not infected or you have mild infection or asymptomatic infection, and you're not in that group that's having cytokine storm that's in the ICU that's really ill. And believe it or not, many of these factors are under your control. Yes, sir, it's just bad luck and they're bad genes, but a lot of this is predictable and it is preventable or it is reducible. So let's talk about how we can predict and prevent or at least reduce. Pasteur says that, talks about germ theory, and Pasteur's germ theory says that we get sick because a bad bug gets into our system and makes us sick. And that is certainly true. Ebola virus causes Ebola, tuberculosis causes tuberculosis, HIV causes AIDS, SARS-CoV-2 causes COVID. This is absolutely true. But terrain theory says that if we have healthy soil, if our terrain is healthy, we are less likely to get sick. And I just want to point out in this cartoon of vaccinate the fish versus clean the tank, it's not either or. By all means, also vaccinate the fish, but make sure that the fish's terrain, that the water in the tank that the fish is swimming in is clean. And in our case, when we think about our tank, our body, it's not about being too clean. It's actually about being dirty enough. It's making sure we have sufficient healthy microbes, the lactobacillus and the bifido that I told you about, enough of that to sustain us. Now, the sad truth is that five days of a broad-spectrum antibiotic of the kind that you might be prescribed for a urinary tract infection or a sinus infection, just five days will wipe out about a third of your gut bacteria. And it is magical thinking to think that you're going to take a probiotic, even a fancy refrigerated prescription, expensive kind, and presto, everything's going to be good again. That is not how it works. I like to tell people that taking an antibiotic is like taking a full bath and draining all the water out, and taking a probiotic is like pouring a cup of water back in. So you cannot mitigate the damage of antibiotics by just taking probiotics. That is absolutely magical thinking. There are times when antibiotics are worse for you. In your first 18 years of life, when your microbiome is still developing, antibiotics can be particularly egregious. Later on, as we get older, our microbiome becomes more stable and we're able to recover more quickly. But large doses of antibiotics for prolonged periods of time, I see a lot of people who've been treated for chronic Lyme disease with sometimes years of doxycycline, et cetera, and they have damage to the microbiome that is often insurmountable. They have removed so much of their healthy gut bacteria. So it's these longer, more intensive courses of antibiotics that can be really damaging to the microbiome. There was an article that came out earlier this year that showed that gut microbes predict severity of COVID. And when I talk about severity, I'm talking about respiratory distress and death. And so they looked at, they did microbial analysis in a large group of patients, and they found that looking at the microbiome could predict severe respiratory distress and death with 92% accuracy. Now, looking at other cofactors like age and comorbidity, And those other factors only predict it with about 77% accuracy. 
And when you combine the microbial analysis with the other demographic factors of age and gender and comorbidity, you ended up with a 96% accuracy for predicting severity. But again, 92% on its own is pretty darn good. And what were they predicting? Remember the earlier slide when I talked about good versus bad bacteria, and one of the not-so-good ones, one of the ones in the bad group, was Enterococcus faecalis, that we call strep faecalis. So what they saw in that study is that people who had higher levels of Enterococcus faecalis were at much higher risk. Similarly, people who had low levels, so I put the bad one in red that's elevated and the good one in green with the arrow that's unfortunately reduced. Fecalobacterium prosnitzii, we call F. prosnitzii for short, my favorite gut bacteria, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Those people who are at increased risk of death and dying from COVID had reduced levels of Fecalobacterium prosnitzii. So again, it all comes back to the microbiome. Fecalobacterium prosnitzii is the most prevalent bacteria in vegans. Now, not Pop-Tart vegans, but vegans who are actually eating vegetables. But the good news is, if you're an omnivore and you are a good vegetable eater, you will be able to generate high levels of Fecalobacterium prosnitzii. So you don't actually have to be a vegan. And if you are a vegan, you need to actually be eating vegetables to grow yourself a garden full of F. prosnitzii. It has a protective role in metabolic diseases, so things like diabetes and obesity. It's strongly correlated with short-chain fatty acid production. And I remember I told you short-chain fatty acids are essential to gut health. Again, it's more prevalent in vegans, and it's associated with a reduced risk for cardiovascular disease, for colon cancer, for diabetes, for obesity, and we think protective against COVID. The reason I have a question mark there is that hasn't been completely worked out, but a lot of the studies have suggested that it is. So if you look at how these short-chain fatty acids get generated and the role of F-prosnitzii, when you ingest dietary fiber, what you're really eating is dietary fiber is a prebiotic, and it's a prebiotic because it is there to feed your bacteria. And Again, no amount of prebiotic fiber that you buy in the store that's made in a factory is going to be as good as actual real prebiotics, just food that you eat. So that would be things like very fibrous vegetables like celery or broccoli, asparagus. And remember to eat the stalks. It's the stalk where most of the fiber is, not the broccoli florets. So celery, asparagus, broccoli, all the leafy greens, you know, all the brassicas, the cruciferous vegetables, any fibrous vegetable is going to have dietary fiber. So the prebiotics, the bacteria in your body break down that fiber and it gets fermented by bacteria. And who is fermenting it? Fecalobacteria prosnitzii, my favorite bacteria. So Fecalobacteria prosnitzii and other similar commensals ferment that dietary fiber and they produce short chain fatty acids. So the prebiotic fiber gets fermented by the bacteria. And remember, probiotics, the definition, are live microorganisms that provide a health benefit. And then you get a postbiotic. And a short-chain fatty acid is a postbiotic. It's a product that is made by bacteria that affects a range of different physiological processes. So it can get a little complicated, prebiotic, probiotic, postbiotic, and then symbiotic, which is a combination of pre and probiotics. But just remember, eat more vegetables. That's, that's all I, I want you to really remember from this. Eat fibrous vegetables. They'll get fermented by your healthy bacteria. You'll churn out these short-chain fatty acids. 
That will help keep your gut lining intact so that that hand and glove relationship, remember, with the gut and the immune system can continue undisturbed. And even more importantly, the short-chain fatty acids help modulate your immune reaction to avoid that cytokine storm. We talked about the Goldilocks immune system, not too active, but active enough. And it's short-chain fatty acids that are intimately involved in modulating that immune response and keeping it healthy. And we see that people who lack enough short-chain fatty acids really because of their diet are at risk for this increased cytokine storm. So this is an, uh, just a cartoon here. Again, um, fairly complicated, but the thing I want you to remember is that you see that mucus layer. So those, those cells with a little nucleus there, that one cell lining of the gut membrane and the bacteria are on the top of the slide and the immune response is at the bottom of the slide. And you see the short-chain fatty acids are involved in mucus production that helps to protect the lining and keep it healthy and also in decreasing inflammation in sort of anti-inflammatory effect of the immune system. So when I think about an antiviral diet, it's very similar to the diet that I put my patients with inflammatory bowel disease on, that I put my patients who have dysbiosis, who have a disrupted microbiome on. It is all kind of leading to the same place. There are a few little tweaks here and there. It's lots of high fiber plant matter in the form of fresh vegetables and fruit, and also things like legumes, what we call microbiota accessible carbohydrates. So that would include oats and beans and things like that. I like to tell my patients about the one, two, three rule. One vegetable with breakfast, two with lunch, three at dinner. So it could be some spinach with your eggs in the morning for the one. The two could be a salad for lunch, and the three could be a small side salad plus some green beans, and you get credit for some chickpeas at dinner. I personally like to flip that because I like to have a green smoothie in the morning and just sort of get it all halfway done with. And in my green smoothie, I usually make it with a coconut water base. It's on the website, gutless.com. You can find it. But I usually use a coconut water base because it gives it a little flavor. And then I use kale and collards almost always. Occasionally, I'll throw spinach in if I don't have kale or collards. But I like those two because they're really robust greens. And you want to use that thick central fiber stem. I throw in some parsley for flavor. I throw in a stalk or two of celery. So really, that's four greens, the kale, the collards, the celery, and the parsley. And then I use some fruit for flavor, whatever I have on hand, nectarines, mango, kiwi, pineapple. I try to stay away from bananas because it makes it too thick. And uh, I always put in a little bit of lemon for flavor and I blend it up in the Vitamix and I drink it down in the morning and boom, that's my medicine for the day. And that's also literally like half my vegetable intake done. So I'm a huge fan of the green smoothie. So again, lots of high fiber plant matter micro-boosting whole grains and legumes. So again, that could be things like quinoa, brown rice, oats, all the beans, split peas are all great for you. And they're more importantly, they're great for your microbes. And then the option of a small amount of protein and fat from animal sources. So you don't have to be a vegan to have an antiviral gut. But I do tell my patients one animal meal a day because the animal meals, which are protein and fat and not fiber, tend to crowd out the fiber on your plate. So it's okay to have some eggs in the morning, but you don't want to have bacon and eggs for breakfast, chicken for lunch, and fish for dinner. That's too much animal protein. So you want to swap out one of those meals and maybe do beans and brown rice for one of those meals or a big salad with chickpeas so that you can just make more room for the plants on your plate. These are the foods that I tell my patients to emphasize, fermented foods, because when you look at a classic fermented food like sauerkraut, 
you take cabbage, which is a high fiber food. Cabbage is great for feeding your gut bacteria. And then when you ferment it with a little salt and water, you create a ton of lactobacillus in the process. So now you're eating actual live bacteria, the prebiotics in the form of the lactobacillus, and also, sorry, the probiotics in the form of the lactobacillus, and also the prebiotic, the cabbage itself, which is a fibrous food for the bacteria. So, you know, if you were stuck on a desert island and could only eat one food, I I would probably pick sauerkraut in terms of the thing that's going to confer the biggest survival advantage. And you don't have to eat a ton of it. You know, have a couple teaspoons. Think of it as a garnish with your meal. Onions, leeks, leafy greens, cruciferous veggies, garlic, asparagus, broccoli, artichokes, green bananas actually are what's called a resistant starch. They are not broken down in the small intestine and they're fermented in the colon and also produce a lot of short chain fatty acids. Radicchio, carrots, radishes, basically anything from the ground is good, honestly. You want to ideally from the ground, not the factory. If I asked you what the biggest predictor of outcome in COVID was, and I gave you a list of obesity, heart disease, diabetes, asthma, older age, high blood pressure, smoking, cancer, autoimmune disease. Now at the end of this talk, you will probably say it's none of those, it's your microbiome. And you're right. But it's also important to note that every single condition that I have listed there is associated with microbial disruption. Yes, even aging. Unfortunately, as we get older, our microbiome deteriorates a little bit. And that's why we tend to have a less robust immune response. And it's why older people don't mount a strong immune response to the vaccine. And so if you are somebody who's older, which for me goes up every year, but for the purposes of this talk, we're talking about over 65, it's really important that you pay attention to these things. It's really important that you're getting in your fiber and paying attention to your immune health because it is just not as robust as somebody who's younger. In the last century, we've had this balancing act between destroying microbes with our highly processed and pesticized food source, antibiotics, our sort of super sanitized lifestyle that we live, and preserving microbes, which we are realizing more and more every year are actually essential for good health. So it's this balancing act. And I really encourage you to think beyond probiotics. This is not how it works, people. You don't eat processed junk food and take antibiotics and then just go grab a probiotic. I mean, that is literally magical thinking. So I want you to think beyond probiotics to what are the things that may be putting your microbiome at risk. Is your diet good enough? Are you having a suboptimal diet? Are you not getting in your one, two, three, six servings of vegetables a day? You not eating enough fiber? Are you drinking too much? We know that one in five adult Americans now, according to the latest study, self-report that they are drinking too much, which means they're really drinking too much. Has alcohol become your main source of stress relief? And is that something that you need to dial back or maybe even just give up entirely? Is chronic stress weighing you down in addition to the fact that we are dealing with a global pandemic, working from home, kids in and out of school, mask wearing, all of it? Should I get a booster? Should I not? It is an incredibly stressful time. And even those of us who are fortunate enough to be comfortable and have comfortable homes and a good situation, there is still just a layer of chronic stress that we wake up with every morning and we go to bed with every night. And we know that stress is one of the most deleterious things for our immune system. So it's really important to think about what are you doing to combat that? Are you 
meeting with people and having adequate social interaction? Are you out in nature? Are you, you know, whatever you're doing to combat the stress, make sure that you're doing it regularly. Are you getting enough exercise? We know that exercise dramatically boosts the immune system and studies recommend at least 20 to 30 minutes every day really to have an active immune system. Are you indoors too much? We know that there are things in air, what we call the open air factor, things outside in the air that are really essential in keeping us healthy and that can have activity against viruses and harmful bacteria. So make sure that you're getting out. Are you getting enough sleep? I highly recommend Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, or his masterclass. It is life-changing when you realize sleep really is the elixir of life. And if you are not getting enough of it, it can have a dramatic effect, not just on your microbiome, but on your immune system. In fact, not getting enough sleep before you get vaccinated can have a profound effect on how effective that vaccine is and how much of an active immune response you mount. So when my daughter was getting her vaccination, she had um, basically been out late the night before and I canceled it. I was like, you, we need to reschedule this for a time when you have gotten two or three good nights sleep in a row, not early in the morning when you've been out late at night. So really important to think about sleep. And then medications. I talked about the antibiotics and what five days of antibiotics can do, steroids, biologics, proton pump inhibitors, acid blockers some of the most commonly prescribed drugs in the world, acid blockers work really well. That's why so many people take them, but they remove your stomach acid and your stomach acid is one of your main defenses against viruses because when that virus gets in through your nose or your mouth and ends up in your GI tract, it's acid that inactivates the protein. So there was a study that came out last fall that showed that people who are taking a proton pump inhibitor, so that's Nexium, Protonics, Prevacid, any one of those, if you're taking that drug once a day, that can double your chances of getting infected. And if you're taking it twice a day, it's a three to fourfold increased risk of COVID acquisition. Because again, you need stomach acid. It's one of your body's main defenses. Stomach acid is just like having enough good bacteria. Stomach acid is one of the main factors involved in having an antiviral gut. So if you are on one of those drugs, talk to your doctor, come up with a plan for how you may be able to taper off, at least ask. And then, of course, all the chemicals and the sort of frankenfoods that we're eating. So I want you to really think about this. Think about how you're living, because the secret to this, yes, these things, vaccines and so on are helpful, but the secret really is within our own bodies. We are beautifully designed and we are designed to resist pathogens. But we have to make sure that we're doing the right thing and that we're paying attention to our gut and we're allowing our body's natural defenses to protect us. I talk about gut bliss. That's the title of my first book. But immune bliss is really what we're all after these days. So immune bliss starts with gut bliss. It starts with a healthy microbiome. And then that leads to clear signals between your gut and your brain, a happy digestive tract immune balance, and then, of course, resistance to infections like SARS-CoV-2. Thank you so much for allowing me to join you today. Again, I can't wait for us to all be together in person. But in the meantime, I'm wishing you immune bliss. You can find me at gutbliss.com, Facebook, Dr. Robin Chutkan, and Twitter, or Instagram, gutbliss. My new book, The Antiviral Gut, comes out in spring 2022. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to share what I consider really life-changing and potentially life-saving 
information with the larger community. So please think about checking it out when it comes out. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone. We are going on 20 years now in our journey with BBNR to bring holistic health to the mainstream. It has really all come from a desire to find ways to flatten out the bumps in the road of our lives and be grateful for when days go well. So much innovation and insight is coming out on health and wellness on a daily basis. It's sometimes hard to keep up. We are so grateful for the speakers who join us on this podcast and to all of the guests that come to our Georgetown conference and to those that join us at Gasparilla every year to share their wisdom. At the end of the day, we hope that we have made you curious enough to try some of these tips in your day-to-day life. We hope that you felt their impact on your life as well as the lives of the people that you love. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.